from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 4. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For indeed, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not, as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. If you haven't been with us the last few weeks, we have been going through the book of 1 Thessalonians, which was an epistle written by the Apostle Paul to the church that he had planted. We began this series looking in the, in, uh, the writings in Acts, uh, about to say the Gospel of Acts, um, in, in demonstrating how Paul actually preached to the Thessalonians because he was on his way through a region of the world where he was ministering to Jews and Gentiles in 
uh, what we call the Roman Mediterranean culture. Uh, people like to use the phrase Greek Hellenism. There was a culture that was deeply pagan, but also had a very subtle but pervasive influence of Hebrew-minded people, people who had converted from paganism into becoming believers in Yahweh, that is, Jews. And so Paul was taking a gospel throughout the world, and before he makes it to uh, Thessalonica, he is cast out of the prior city. And we saw how in both that prior city and this one, he was beaten, abused, left for dead. And yet here, after only three weeks, he has developed such a bond with the Thessalonians that when he gets a chance, when they get to Athens, we saw last week how they, Paul is willing to be left alone in the city of Athens so that the Thessalonians would have the encouragement of Timothy coming to them. And how Timothy brought back a reminder of the faith of the Thessalonians. That is, Timothy was sent to strengthen them and to report back. And that when he returns, Paul says, therefore, we were, reflect, we were refreshed. We live because you live. And so we saw last week how the Christian faith is a communion of God's people, that it's not an individual walk, it's not an individual fight for holiness, but rather that as God's people, when God's people are blessed, we're blessed. That the communion or the koinonia, the faith of God's people is such that your joy can become my joy. Because when I am valuing your good in God, your good in God, your blessing in God becomes a reason for me to celebrate. And so Christian communion, Christian fellowship, Christian faith shared among his people is an exploding of or a redounding of joy. Uh, there's a wonderful song that we're going to sing here when we get to Christmas to repeat the sounding joy. And you know how the rest of that song goes, I'm, I'm assuming, that it gets repeated and repeated. And we had this illustration of a faucet that's on while you're taking one glass and pouring it into the next while still having the faucet on in the sink. That God is still filling his people with his grace and that the joy that we share is overflowing from one cup into the next. And so now, after having explained not only the apostolic task and not only the church task, Paul then is eager to remind the individual Thessalonican believers that they personally must guard their souls. He has been working as an apostle. He has been ensuring that the church would be strengthened. And now he begins to give ethical commands that must be fulfilled individually and corporately. So I want to review what we've been doing in the Thessalonian letter and examine how it fits this grand scheme or this grand theme. Paul loves the Thessalonians. Therefore, he writes to them, encouraging them and giving them commands to persevere. So as those who are called to a new life in Christ, Paul urges these Thessalonians to walk in purity and in holiness, loving one another and waiting with hope for Christ's return. Every single chapter in the way that the chapter divisions have been inserted into the Thessalonian letters ends with a reminder of the return of Jesus Christ. And so if you remember at the start of this series, we said how this will take us as a church out of ordinary time and into the time of Advent 
in which we as a church not only remember the time of Israel before us as they were waiting for the first coming of the Messiah, we too likewise are waiting for the return of the Messiah. We are waiting for his second coming. And as Christians, we not only need to wait for and hope for, we also, as we're gonna see in this passage, we need to work for his second coming. Not that we cause it to take place, but that we are not supposed to simply twiddle our thumbs, but rather we are supposed to be involved in bringing the kingdom of God to fruition, that it is manifest through how we carry our hearts in holiness and how we love one another. So this passage, which talks about purity, love for the brothers, and eager hope for the Lord's return, it's all in one theme. It's that we would persevere in faith, waiting for the Lord Jesus' return. So to that end, I want to look at four major ideas from this passage. First is that the instructions given to the Thessalonians are apostolic. They do not carry the authority of men. They carry the authority of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ deputized his apostles. He said, do this in my place. Then I wanna look at the command to walk in holiness and what this command teaches us about the Christian life and how it is to be lived. I wanna look at a idea called Christian simplicity. This may be a very new word to some of you. The Puritans use this word quite a bit to describe the sort of way of life that is appropriate and befitting a Christian. And then finally, as all the chapters in Thessalonians end, we will look forward to the hope of the Lord Jesus' return. Now, at the onset, I just wanna say that these are very difficult verses at the end of this chapter because of the way they've been used in the modern era. And so I hope to do well with the time uh, when we get to that passage, but uh, don't miss the significance of what takes place at the end of this chapter. For some of us who disdain the twisting of these words, these words haven't been as encouraging to us and they ought to be encouraging to us. So, um, Paul has reminded these Thessalonians of the joy which came from Timothy's report, that they were growing in faith, and that faith in God's gospel and his call to turn from idols to serve the living and the true God has borne fruit. Therefore, for the Thessalonians, their hope was placed in the Holy Spirit's continued sanctifying work. The Thessalonians were not merely trusting that the apostles would return and that godly elders and pastors would be established among them, but they had a hope in the Lord Jesus sustaining them unto his return. Their love, as we're going to see in a few short minutes, their love was an expression of God's life among them. It wasn't as if their love was a manufactured thing. No, it was the outworking. It was the natural progression of the effect of the gospel. Paul then has shared his heart for them in prior chapters as a, we saw how Paul was speaking as a mother or as a father, a mother who is nursing his children and a father who is loving or admonishing or protecting his children. Now he begins to do that which is appropriate for children. He begins to tell them how to walk. Paul then reminds the Thessalonians of a calling. Now, when we hear the word calling, we often switch that word out for what is rightly called a vocation. That comes from the word calling. But often we think of calling and we instantly translate that to ministry or job 
or the desire to be a parent or the desire to be married or single, we, we think the calling of God is a unique individual application for God's will for our life. But in this chapter, what Paul is saying is that God in the gospel has called you Thessalonians to turn to the living God from idols to serve the living and the true God, as we saw in in, in the first chapter. And so this calling upon the Thessalonians, Paul is reminding them that this calling is not a call that they can answer or not. They are answering that calling by whether they obey or not. It's not a calling as so often is presented in the gospel preaching today of try Jesus. No, it is a calling that God in Christ has reconciled you to him. Therefore, Come, become a new creation and walk in a manner that's pleasing to the Father. He says at the beginning of this chapter, finally, brothers, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. How did the Thessalonians receive the Lord Jesus? We know this clearly from Galatians 3, 5, by hearing with faith. The Thessalonians heard the word of God preached by the apostles. They believed that word and therefore changed their lives in accordance with that word. He goes on in verse two, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Remember, Paul was with them only three short weeks. He not only preached the gospel, but after preaching the gospel, he then continued to apply the gospel. He did not merely offer for three Sabbaths in a row a free offer of forgiveness. No, he preached the possibility of forgiveness, the availability of the atoning work of Jesus Christ for those who put their faith in him, and then immediately gave, as we've seen in prior chapters, a warning that persecution is coming. And a warning, you must not walk as you often have. You must change the way you live now that you have come to be claimed by Jesus Christ. Paul therefore describes the Christian life in these verses as a walk. I want you to think about a walk. It doesn't mean a short journey. It means the manner of living for the rest of your life. It is a habit, or you might call it a pattern, or a typical way of operating. This metaphor is extremely instructive. I think it is more than a metaphor. It's a spiritual imagery, which is true in itself. It's not that Paul is just making a metaphor that has lots of holes in it, as often so many metaphors do. He's applying a concept of God's world to the unseen realm of the Christian life. I think that this metaphor is extremely helpful because it gives us safeguards against presumption and against prevailing sins. Here's why. Because how you walk is pretty common from day to day. I want you to think about how people learn to walk. First, children must learn to walk. And this cannot be done, as you fathers and mothers have learned, this cannot be done without falling. It is one of the greatest temptations as a father to protect your children from the very thing they need to experience so that they learn how to walk. If you've, if you've been a parent, you know this feeling like, oh, that coffee table's in the way. Oh, that toy's in the way. They have to learn with safeguards how to negotiate and how to, how to travel, how to, how to 
path, a route around things. This is a requirement for learning how to walk. The second thing is, it is not impossible to walk. Excuse me, the the second thing this tells us, it is not impossible to not walk. Rather, the only question is whether that walk will be godly or it will be ungodly. You are walking out a Christian walk. It may not be godly, but you are walking out your calling in the gospel. And the question is not whether you are choosing to go on the Christian walk or to go after Christ. It is rather whether you are conducting yourself according to God's word or according to your own dictates. The third thing this metaphor shows us is that after a season of failures and fallings, eventually this walk will become stable. Again, think about a child who is growing up. They are learning how to walk, and unless there be some medical reason or mental reason, that child will eventually learn how to walk. So the the Christian walk, as we presuppose, when we entertain notions of prevailing sins that we tolerate, Paul would say, hmm, that doesn't sound like a walk. That sounds like someone who's been hamstrung someone who's been, had their ankle broken. That doesn't sound like a walk. That sounds like a hobbling or a crippling. The fourth thing that this does is it tells us about the need for perseverance. As Solomon wrote in Proverbs twenty four sixteen, the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumbles unto calamity. That is to say that those who are in Christ, those who are just men, righteous men, yes, they indeed do stumble. It is not like the Christian walk has no rocks or or ditches in the path, but that when we stumble, we resume our walk. We don't wallow in the ditch. Nevertheless, just as in human experience, our walk by God's grace should be mature. Most of us, if we twisted our ankle every day, we would never make any progress in walking. And I believe that's the sort of perspective that Paul is wanting to say. Will we be without sin? No. Will we walk in health and maturity? That's what Paul is calling us to. He's saying you must walk as pleasing to the Father. The Christian walk, therefore, is seen in these verses as a product of the new birth after which we are alive to God and dead to sin. After we are made new, we receive from God his word containing promises and prohibitions which renew our minds and shape our lives. Remember, he said, as you have received the gospel, so also walk, do more and more. That just as they had come to Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel, likewise, the preaching of the gospel is not a salvation project alone. Justification and sanctification are the aim of all gospel preaching. There aren't salvation sermons and sanctification sermons. They're all the same goal. They all have the same aim in mind. God's word is given to his people to transform their ideas, loves, and desires that our lives would begin to resemble their elder brother. Look at what Paul says in these next few verses. Amazingly, Paul says that the Thessalonians are already pleasing to God. Many Christians have such a low view of the new birth, that is the mercy of God, the effectiveness of the mediator, that they think God is impossible to please. Earlier in these verses, Paul said, 
as you are pleasing God, do so more and more. And many of us have adopted a view of sin that is incorrect, or rather a view of the mercy of the Father that is insufficient. The Puritans have a phrase for the the Lord Jesus Christ that his role is a mediator. And the mediator not only communicates and presents our behalf to God, but he also presents the things of God to God's people. And the father so loves the son that the father is unwilling to look around the son to see God's people. When the father sees his children, he sees them through the lens of Jesus Christ all the time. Without exception, the Lord Jesus is perfect in his mediatorial relationship to his people. Therefore, we can please the Father. We know in Hebrews 11 verse 6, without faith is it, it is impossible to please him. What's the, what's the logical consequent? It is that if you have faith in his word, it is possible to please him. That verse goes on to say, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. You see what that verse emphasizes? That with faith, hearing God's word and trusting that that word, its promises and prohibitions will bear fruit in your life, that you are pleasing to God. So many of us have grown up with so damaging of earthly fathers that we project upon the heavenly father our understanding of our terrible fathers. Our heavenly father is a perfect, loving father. All of those who are truly in Jesus Christ not only can please him, but they must please him because they must live according to his graces that he's giving through his word. Those who truly receive God's word and trust in him do please him. What a wonderful promise. That to me, when when we sing at Easter, we sing this song, heaven's gates are open wide as part of the refrain. That to me is one of those ideas. I can actually please the father through the Lord Jesus Christ by trusting the word that he gave through his spirit by his prophets and apostles, that I can please the creator That as a creature, I no longer am relegated to being trapped in rebellion against him, but I am set free in the gospel and can take baby steps to pleasing my father who I'm gonna live with forever. What a great promise. Therefore, because Paul knows the authenticity of the Thessalonians' faith, he just said they are pleasing to God. Paul, therefore, is eager to remind them of these instructions that they have come through Jesus. They have not come. These ethical instructions have not come because of the opinions of the apostles. They have come in Jesus Christ. Paul, therefore, in this passage, gives a singular application of a call to sanctification. He says, for this is the will of God. Again, going back to that idea in the calling, we often think, I want to know God's will for my life. This is God's will for your life, your sanctification. Well, I really mean, do I want to be married or single? No, that doesn't, that's not what the aim of God's will is in the gospel. Yes, you will figure it out. You need to take some wisdom to figure out those things. But the will of God is that God's people would not be trapped in sin. This is the will of God, your sanctification. And there, here is the singular application Now, I believe Paul highlighted this because of what he knew of this culture, that although this culture had many idols and 
fake gods and, and demon gods, that the chief way by which the sin of Thessalonica was getting inroads into the church was through sexual immorality. And therefore, it is deeply applicable to us. He says that each one of you ought to know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. He goes on to describe this, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all of these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. So those who truly wish to do God's will are eager to follow his word. They're eager to walk out their sanctification. If we are truly children of the Father, then we ought to desire to do our Father's will. True knowledge of God, true communion with him through his word, his spirit, and church produces a knowledge of how to control your body. This is so applicable to us in the 21st century This self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit's work. Therefore, if the Holy Spirit is truly at work in you, then you ought to love pursuing the working out of that self-control. Paul directly implies that in these passages, those who are captive to the passion of lust are captive because they do not know who God is. He says, not in the passion of lust, in verse 5, not in the passion of lust, just like the Gentiles who do not know God. What a wonderful idea that God is bringing about a sanctification in his people that those who do not know God cannot fulfill, but those who do know God will fulfill. The point is this, that that Paul is explaining to these Thessalonians that they are those who are experiencing a new life in Jesus Christ and that as those who are experiencing a new life in Jesus Christ, they cannot live as those who do not know God. They must live as those who do know God. As we read in verse 6, excuse me, verse five, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Do you see the implication here is, what what the implication here is? Those who do know God are redeemed. Those who do not know God are estranged from him and therefore because they do not know God, they cannot live according to his ways and his promises. So what Paul is explaining to these Thessalonians is that those who reject God's authority do not, or excuse me, the apostles' authority, they do not reject the authority of men, but they reject the authority of God. God has given his Holy Spirit to make his people holy. Therefore, they must not persist in uncleanness. As we learn, men and women in this world today, to fight the fight of faith against sexual immorality, we must understand not only do does this living belie that we know God, but also that the Lord Jesus Christ is an avenger of those who do not walk this way. Paul calls the Thessalonians to recognize the call of God on their lives to forsake all uncleanness and live before him in holiness. Having warned against sexual sin, Paul then reminds these believers to love one another. Moving from this idea that, that Paul says, do not wrong your brothers in these things, he then goes on to explain the working out of that, that this is love towards one another. 
Because God has given his spirit to make his people holy, they must not persist in uncleanness. In verse nine, he says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. The idea here is that the Thessalonians have loved the Philippians and the other churches in Macedonia, that the Thessalonians have given money and sent resource to these other churches. Paul then commends these Thessalonians for supporting these churches. Nevertheless, they must continue. Christians have an obligation to pray, to give, to support, to encourage and strengthen and visit their fellow Christians wherever they learn about need. This is why it was such a joy to me that our church joyfully responded to the call to partner with the churches in Bangladesh. Can GCF Dayton answer the call of need for every church in the Christian world? No. Can we answer some needs? Yes. And we ought to pursue so more and more. Paul urges them to excel in this worked out love. But then he continues to say that you do so more and more. The implication or application is this. No matter what we have done yesterday, we cannot rest on our laurels. We can't pride ourselves in obedience of yesterday. We must continue on in the future. The secret to generosity, as Paul explains in these next few verses, is not therefore giving in money alone, but rather it is living a life of simplicity. It is having a heart that's not in love with money so that you can give, and then living a life that is less than your necessity or less than your means so that you have something to give. He's saying you must not be in love with money and you must not be without money. By this, I do not mean Paul is telling the Thessalonians to live lives pursuing man, uh, mammon, pursuing monetary riches, but that they would live in simple lives. The Puritans called this doctrine the doctrine of Christian simplicity. And in our world today, it is a much needed uh, it is a much needed virtue to be restored to the Christian church. He says in verse 11, we reminded you to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. This doctrine of Christian simplicity has two things in mind, not living beyond your means and not living as if your life is just things. Jesus warned when he addressed the brother or the man who was seeking his brother's inheritance, he said to him, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It blows my mind to drive around our city and in the poorest sections of our city, we see the most amazing cars. I passed a Jaguar yesterday that I looked up the list price of $60,000 before kit, before building it out. And to me, if you own a Jaguar, that's fine. The point is this. I believe in our world today, as people swimming in the water of American culture, that we have been so inundated with advertisement that we have not re-examined what we need versus what we have. 
If you, if you just want to take a, a trip down an experiential working out of this practice, just watch TV for a few minutes today. Don't, don't leave it on too long. <laughs> what, what is Coke? Coke is happiness. Coke isn't happiness. <laughs> Having worked in an ad agency for a few short years, I've seen the way the sausage is made. It is terrifying. The conversations that are, that are happening. The point is this, that Christians in America especially are deeply, are in deep danger of not living out what, what God would have us live out. Yes, we can own cars. I own two cars. I own two pieces of property. I'm not against owning things. What I am against is thinking, and what I believe Paul is against, is thinking that your life is so wrapped up within acquiring things and having the latest phone or the latest guitar or the latest piece of software or the latest piece of clothing, that, that we begin to pursue being a good steward, I'm using air quotes for those on the tape, being a good steward in the name of hedonism, just wanting stuff. And, and we saw how at the beginning of this letter, the whole point of what Paul says in, in, the, in verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians 1, that they turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. And the point of that was this, that in Thessalonica, they would fashion these things made out of wood and overlaid with gold. And we spent a few minutes thinking about what they were doing before they bowed down to it. Somebody paid someone else to chop down a tree and to carve it into a shape. And then somebody paid someone else to go dig in the dirt and take a bunch of that dirt and put it in a furnace. And out came some gold through that process. And then they paid somebody else to take that gold and to tack it on the side of the wood and glue it and hammer it like gold foil. And then they put it out and then they started bowing down before stuff that came out of the ground. That was what idolatry was shown to be. And this is the sort of idolatry that Americans love. We love our things. And the point of the Christian gospel is that the only thing that can actually satisfy is not things, it's a person. It's God himself. Therefore, I believe Paul's instruction to live simply, to live and work with your hands so that you would not be dependent upon anything is a necessity if we are to give. We cannot be laden in debt with consumer goods if we are going to give. Therefore, I think Paul to be saying to God's people that they ought to reevaluate the things that they purchase in light of how they are able to give. So finally, Paul then encourages these Thessalonians concerning those who have died in the Lord. I want to bring us back to the aim of this text. Every single verse in this text, in this chapter, has an aim of teaching the Thessalonians how they walk out love for each other. They're called to holiness, and he emphasizes that no one wrong his brother in these things, for the Lord will avenge. That the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, is tied to the tenth commandment, do not covet your neighbor's house or his wife. That these two things, the vertical and horizontal nature of sin, are the same. They're connected. And therefore, he reminds them in this passage about their love for those who have died in their church, and he is 
putting a stop to false teaching in their church about those faithfully departed saints. He says in verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. This idea that that Paul is getting at here, I believe, was an outworking of a teaching that was going on in that region. That those who were wondering whether or not they were uh, at, at risk of of not missing the Lord's return, that this is actually answering something we can see later on in the gospel, in the epistles, excuse me. Paul writes these words to comfort those who have experienced the loss of a friend, a family member, those who have died in Christ, but, but did not make it to his return. Those who died before the return of Christ are not lost forever. I believe it's the case that Paul, just as he's addressing in another epistle, that something was going on in Thessalonica, that false teachers or false brothers or just Christians of good faith had not understood the call to persevere rightly and began to teach some doctrine like this, that those who do not trim their wicks and are not able to meet the bridegroom at his coming are shut out of the wedding feast. That someone was going around in Thessalonica saying that the Lord is going to return any moment and therefore we must live until his return. It's likely the case, although he does not explicitly say it, it's likely the case that some false teachers have disturbed these Thessalonians. In 2 Timothy 2, 17 and 18, we read that Paul uh, uh, sanctions or, or censors some false teachers who were going around, quote, saying that the resurrection had already happened and they are up, upsetting the faith of some. I think a parallel thing is happening here. It's not the exact same idea, but I think what Paul is addressing is a false teaching that had rooted in the church, and therefore it was distressing people in the body. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, we're about to look at words that are often twisted in the modern era. These words, these next few verses that we are about to examine, have, which are intended to comfort God's people have often been used to teach distressing doctrines which present the time of Christ's return as terror for God's people. What we are about to read concerns a doctrine commonly called in the modern era the rapture. And this doctrine teaches a particular thing, a few things. However, before we examine what that teaching talks about, first I want to highlight from the New Testament a few perspectives that the rapture must harmonize with, if it is to be true. The first thing is in Acts 3, 20 through 21. From the apostles, we know that the Father, quote, will send the Christ appointed for us, Jesus, whom heaven must receive or retain until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. 
So before the coming of Christ, God promised his people that there would be a restoration of all things. And we don't have time to look at all of the passages that the apostles are referring to, but if you want to spend some time in the first 10 chapters of Isaiah, there are an amazing amount of promises of the restoration of all things to which the apostles are referring. Pessimistic eschatologies commonly taught as the rapture, which teach a final revival of satanic power throughout the world, culminating in a great apostasy from the church, do not agree with the rest of the New Testament. The common teaching is taken from 1 Timothy 4 and this passage, taking some particular verses out of the context of those chapters, that there will be a great falling away in the latter days, and then there will be a return from, of the Lord Jesus, and he will snatch his people up to avoid the judgment of the great satanic apostasy spreading in the last years of the earth. However, here in these verses and in the Corinthian letter, we hear that the end of all things is a glorious comfort to the people of God and should be seen as the victorious welcoming of Jesus to the earth. The entire church will indeed, as these verses say, will indeed be gathered to usher in the return of the Lord Jesus, not to escape the destruction of the world, but as the final crescendo of of restoration. The idea is this, that through the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, he will capstone that which he has been doing throughout the ages. Paul writes a very important idea to the Corinthians as he talks about resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 26, we read, then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So I want you to think about the time of that verse, that the end comes when Jesus gives the kingdom over to the Father. So Jesus Christ is reigning on the throne of heaven. He's reigning at the right hand of power. He's administrating something. It's a grand restoration in which he is destroying every rule, every authority, and power. Verse 25 confirms that reading. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Who are the feet of Jesus Christ? The body of Christ. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. In pessimistic or pessimillennial eschatologies, they teach a doctrine which Jesus Christ will return, the dead in the church will rise, and they will be snatched away, and the rest of the earth will be left. And Satan will accomplish that which he started in the garden. He will destroy the whole earth. And after that great apostasy and great tribulation in which part of the church will fall away, then Jesus will return to the earth fully and reign. However, in these verses, that doesn't make sense. Because in that idea that Jesus will raise his people from the dead and then start defeating his enemies, that doesn't accord with 1 Corinthians 15. Because the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And that eschatology teaches that the first enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus will bring back the resurrection of the dead. He will inaugurate the resurrection from the dead 
as the final note in the symphony. Therefore, verse 18, encourage one another with these words. The thing that I dislike the most about negative eschatologies which promote doom and gloom, which cause God's people to be dismayed and to fear whether or not they will make it through the tribulation is this, that Paul has clearly written this entire chapter to encourage love among the brothers and he has said that these words in verse 18 are to be comforting. The word encourage can also be translated comforting, that this is the goal of Paul's letter. He says, those who are dead in Christ, they will rise and we will meet the Lord in the air and we will then usher him back. Not we will live with him forever in the clouds, rather he's coming to this earth and we are kind of like a general who's coming into a city, returning to the capital after conquering the nations. We are like those who go out and welcome him in just as they did on the day where they shouted Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He had a party come out to him and celebrate him, and then they return on into the city. So the point is this, that the knowledge that Christ will return and in doing so raise all of his people to live forevermore as a new fully redeemed humanity in a fully redeemed earth or world is encouraging indeed. This is why it is so important to understand the end because your knowledge of the end will shape how you live today. Therefore, the calling of God compels us as those who walk to walk in knowing our God and living and working in the hope of his son's restoration of all things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are able to cause your people to persevere we pray, Lord, that you would deliver us from, from sins which easily entangle us, that you would deliver us from experiencing trials and tribulations that are brought out because we are still in love with things that, in, that formerly enslaved us. We pray, Lord, that none of us would suffer knowing that you are an avenger of those who... who wrong their brothers in these things. We also pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to the glorious knowledge that you will indeed return and that that will be a great and wonderful day and that we do not have to fear your return, but that we can eagerly anticipate it. We pray that your son would get all glory upon that day and in us every day until then. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray, amen.